0: In this edition of the Pleasant View Baptist Podcast, Pastor Ed Heading explores the holiness of God. With scripture from Isaiah 6, 1 through 8, here is Pastor Ed Heading.
1: Isaiah chapter 6, we begin a series called the Summer of Unpreached Topics. We're going to preach about a lot of things that you would normally not hear anyone preach about. Today we're going to talk about the holiness of God. Next week we're going to talk about what a broken heart and contrite spirit is from Psalm 51 dealing with our sin we're going to talk about christian humanism a christian perspective on what the man is is from how god looks at man and how he wants us to look at others around us we're going to talk about hell we're going to talk about money matters so the summer of unpreached topics but our scripture reading today talking about the holiness of god is isaiah chapter 6 <clears throat> and if you would stand if please with me and we give honor to the Word of God. And if you read with me from the screen as well, so we read all together the same version, let's read these words together. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And may God at his blessing, at the reading of his word. You may be seated. <clears throat> so as we embark on this topic of the holiness of God, I was in seminary, and I had studied theology in several classes. And as I've mentioned before, a book that just really enlightened me was J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, and how to make the attributes of God personal and applicable to your life. And one of the things he says in that book that's so important that we need to understand is that holiness is the very essence of God. That mercy, compassion, wrath, anger, all those things would pale in significance if it wasn't for the fact that he is a holy person. God And holy means without sin. And for you and I, we cannot put our mind around that because we don't know what it is to be perfect and without any sin whatsoever. And so this message is very, very important for all of us in our Christian life because we live in a world that wants to redefine God continually all the time. And we as Christians, when we, we want to redefine God from time to time to fit our lifestyle, to deal with our sins so we don't uh, look so bad and all these things. And we need to be able to see like Isaiah did here in this passage who God really is and then measure our lives to that standard, not the standard of what other people say about God, but who God is. And my premise today is to see a holy God is to live a different life. When you see God in all of his glory, as we just sang about in many of these songs this morning, and all in who he is, it will change the way that you live your life. Because I believe that we should be living for an audience of one. Him, God the Father, Jesus Christ. So let's look today at a vision that Isaiah was allowed to have, a vision of who God really is. And thankfully, we have this vision recorded in scripture for posterity so we can go back to it at any time. So please take out your outline if you would. And the first point I want you to see today is that Isaiah was consumed by his vision of the holy God. He was consumed. He was captivated. He was on the floor right there seeing who God really was in this vision. Look at verse 1, the first part. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died. he said well, what's A big deal about that. Well, if you were Uzziah and his family, that's a big deal, right? Because he died. But for Israel, it was also a very big deal because he was the king for 52 years. And Isaiah was a prophet for some of that time with him. And during those 52 years, Uzziah was a great king. The country became very wealthy, prosperous. There was peace. There was security. There wasn't any war. And it brought a big problem because Israel began to decay from the inside out because of their wealth, because of their prosperity, because they relied on Uzziah instead of who God was. And so when Uzziah died, it sent an earthquake through the people of Israel because they were uncertain of what the future leadership was going to be all about. You see, Uzziah did not serve the Lord, but he served pagan gods. The Israelites, they became complacent in the worship of God and his law. They allowed sin to slowly creep in because if everything was going well, we could rely on ourselves. Their worship had become just merely a ritual, something they did to appease God and hope the blessings would just continue to flow in their life. But let's look back, turn back to Isaiah chapter 5, if you would, to get some background on the condition of the culture at that time. And I'm going to read um, verses 18 through 24 from Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, The Message. Verse 18 of Isaiah 5, doomed to you who use lies to sell evil, who haul sin to market by the truckload, who say, what's God waiting for? Let him get a move on so we can see it. Whatever the holy of Israel has cooked up, we'd like to check it out. Doomed to you who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness in place of light and light in place of darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Doomed to you who think you're so smart, Who hold such a high opinion of yourselves. All you're good at is drinking. Champion boozers who collect trophies from drinking bouts. And then line your pockets with bribes from the guilty while you violate the rights of the innocent. But they won't get by with it as fire eats stubble and dry grass goes up in smoke. Their souls will atrophy. Their achievements crumble into dust. Because they said no to the revelation of God of the angel armies would have nothing to do with the holy Israel. One day, Uzziah woke up and decided to go into the temple, and he decided to do something that was disobedient to God. And so he lived the rest of his life ceremonially unclean, unable to go back into the temple because he became a leper. The security and the stability of Israel was rocked by his death. Uncertainty of the future made the nation tense and nervous. The Israelites unconsciously had moved from dependence and worship of God to dependence and worship of a man, Uzziah. So that leads us to the 1st subpoint: is the false security of man. See, the problem is when we live in the wealthiest nation of the world and we have everything going for us, it's easy to look to man. It's easy to look to others for security. It's easy in the church to look to a pastor or leader's. And as we've been watching in our society, we see politicians and entertainers and pastors falling left and right because of moral problems and other things. We cannot trust in man to bring us to where God wants us to be. We have to depend upon him. But we live where man is at the center of the universe. And it's not only true for unbelievers, but sometimes for us as well. And so the Israelites were reminded with the death of Uzziah, that they need to find their dependence in God and God alone. And he had a way of getting their attention by taking out Uzziah. Let's look at what happened now that Uzziah is gone and the nation of Israel is wondering what is next for them. God reveals himself to Isaiah in this great vision. Look at the second part of verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 6. I saw the Lord, Isaiah said, sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. We see, first of all, I'm sure Isaiah did that he encountered the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. False security, man was gone, now it's looking to the Lord in his vision, and he got a holy fear of who God was. I believe that he saw and had a reverential awe, a reverence for God like he ever had before. He said in verse 1 there, I saw the Lord in all of his glory and all of his holiness. What is holiness? Here's a great definition if you want to write this down. The moral excellence of God... That unifies his attributes and is expressed through his actions, setting him apart from all others. We just sang a song that started out, there is no rival. Sets apart God from anyone else. The moral excellence of God that unifies his attributes and is expressed through his actions, setting him apart from all others. To see God in our mind's eye and all of his glory and holiness should cause us to fear him. Yes, yes, to fear him in a way that we don't want to be near him because it says in Hebrews that our God is a consuming fire. It's a fearful thing, the writer of Hebrews says, to fall in the hands of a living, angry God. Yes, we need to have that fear, but yet our God, as we'll see, is approachable as well. We need to have a a reverence for him, majesty, see him in all of his glory, to have a healthy respect for who he is and what he can do. But God does not want to be unapproachable, even though he is the supreme power. Notice some components of this vision. First of all, power. The display of power that went on. Isaiah said God was seated on a throne, showing his sovereign rule and power and authority over all the nations of the world. See, in this time, many of the gods were regional, were local to the particular cultures. Ashtaroth and Molech and others, but this God, Yahweh, was supreme over all. The throne represents God's authority in being the sovereign ruler of the world. It says here that he is high and exalted. And here's the question, is God the sovereign ruler of your life? Or are we like the Israelites in Isaiah chapter 5 that taunted God and tried to tell him to hurry up and to speak to them and tell them what was going on in their lives? Look at verse 18 and 19 of Isaiah 5 once again. Doomed to you who use lies to sell evil, who haul sin to market by the truckload, who say, what's God waiting for? Let him get a move on so we can see it. Whatever the holy of Israel is cooked up, we'd like to check it out. We want God to speak to us when we want him to speak, and we want him to speak how we want him to speak on our terms. That's what they were saying. Do you see God as the chief architect And the engineer behind the plans that he has for your life? Are you yielding daily to his sovereign rule and way in your life? So that's power. Second of all, his presence. Isaiah saw his very presence the train of his robe, the smoke filling the temple. I believe this was a vision of the pre incarnate Christ. We know from the Bible that God is not visible. In First 1 Timothy 1:17, 1, it says, to the king of the ages, "Immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen." We also know from Scripture that if someone sees the Lord face to face, they would die. Isaiah or Exodus chapter 33, Moses said, "Please, Lord, show me your glory, And God said, "I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name." the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. No one has seen the visible face of God. So we believe that this would be Christ before he was wrapped up in human flesh, brought down to earth and walked among us. Isaiah saw the very presence of God, We see the train of his robe that have filled the temple. It's interesting that God reveals himself in his vision in the temple. We know the temple and the temple sacrifices pictured the righteous dealings of sovereign God and his promised dealings with his people. Notice God's presence. When he is there, he fills the temple. Wherever God is present, he fills everything. Notice that there are also seraphs, angels. Seraph in the Hebrew literally means to burn. So these angels are on fire, perpetually burning, but of course, never being consumed. They had two wings that covered their face that showed their humility before God. They had two wings that covered their feet that showed their holy service to God. They had two wings for flying that showed they were capable and available to go at God's command to proclaim God's holiness and glory anywhere in the universe at a moment's notice. Notice the repetition in verse 3 where he says, holy, holy, holy. Notice when you read through the Bible and the angels give honor and glory to God, they don't say mercy, mercy, mercy. They don't say compassion, 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 or wrath, wrath, wrath. Holy, holy, holy. It shows us the utter, utter supreme and complete purity of God. It also alludes to the the Trinity the three, God the Father, God the Son, the Holy Spirit, all are holy. Notice also what happened as the seraphs glorified God and proclaimed his holiness in verse 4. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. The thresholds were those large foundational stones at the front or all around the circumference of the temple. And then the doorposts, the columns that went up to hold the the great weight of the building itself. The thresholds and doorposts shook, showing the awesome power and the presence of a holy God. Isaiah was consumed and overwhelmed by what he was seeing firsthand. I can't imagine what was going through his mind. At first, he was awestruck, I am sure. But thirdly, we see God's preeminence, preeminence that he is over all. The phrase, train of his robe, and the smoke as the foundation shook is revealing his glory in the vision. This is that same Shekinah glory that came down when the Israelites were traveling through the wilderness and God established the tabernacle. And it was that cloud by day, that pillar of fire by night. That was the presence of God, God dwelling with his people. We look later at Solomon's temple, and we know that the Shekinah glory came down and rested over the Ark of the Covenant. Rested there so people knew that the presence of God was dwelling with them. And so as we think about that in our application, how does this apply to us? How deeply and sincerely do you respect and honor the Lord? Are we flippant with his name? I heard one athlete who won a championship this week said, I thank the man upstairs. Is he just the man upstairs to us? How do we treat his name? Are we ashamed of his name when we're out in public? Do we honor? Do we have deep and sincere respect and honor for the Lord? Well, Isaiah is seeing the holy God revealed to him with all his glory, his power and majesty. At first, I'm sure that Isaiah is consumed as his vision unfolds. But then all of a sudden, he's like, uh-oh, what am I doing here? He begins to be conscious of who he is in light of this amazing vision of the holiness of God. And that leads us to our second point that Isaiah was consumed with his unworthiness before the holy God. Isaiah was consumed with his unworthiness before a holy God. Do you ever find yourself in that place in your prayer life where you're awed by who he is? But you feel so unworthy to even be in his presence. Look at verse 5. We'll see what Isaiah did. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. And the King James, it says, I'm undone. I'm finished. I'm the dead man. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. Notice his first response, personal confession and dread of sin. When he was in the very presence of God, the first thing that came across to him was, I am a dead man. I am sinful. I've done a lot of things that are wrong. I don't deserve to be in God's presence. He said, I'm a man of unclean lips. Notice he talks of his lips. His lips not only represent his words, but also the actions and the attitudes of his heart. The words we say reveal what's in our heart. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? He says here that I am dead. First of all, he says, I've seen God and that's a cause for death. He knew that God had said, No one has seen the Lord face to face because they will die. But second, he said, I'm dead because I'm a sinner in the presence of a holy God. Job had a similar reaction when he had a conversation with God toward the end of the book of Job in Job 42. And at the conclusion of his conversation with God, where God put Job in his place, he said, I'd heard of you by this hearing of the ear, Job said, but now my eye sees you. And his response to that is, therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. The apostle John and the book of Revelation had a similar response when he saw God in all of his glory in a vision as well. He said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last. How do we view ourselves in light of knowing a holy God? How do we view ourselves as we come upon this vision, this understanding of who God is in all his perfection?" By what standard are we measuring sin in our lives? Are we comparing ourselves to other Christians? Do we say that I'm not as bad as that person, so therefore I must be spiritual and right with God? Do we measure our sin standard against the culture around us? That's absolutely disastrous to do that. Or do we measure ourselves to the divine standard of God's holiness, the Word of God and the Holy Spirit? And in our prayer time, as God speaks to us and reveals our relationship with Him? Are we seeing sin as God sees sin in our lives? Do we agree with God about our sin? Or are we merely sorry that we got caught? Well, it was in the ninth grade year of my junior high experience, and I wasn't a Christian yet, and I had pretty good grades in junior high school, and I was in French, second year French class. We had a wonderful teacher. And for some reason, for the first time in my life, I got this bright idea. Why study? Maybe I could cheat off my friend Bill next to me. And so, as it happened, I began to do this on a habitual way. Well, you begin and you're very careful. You don't want to get caught, right? And it's just like telling a lie. And pretty soon, all of a sudden, you start getting comfortable with it. And sure enough, I got caught. Brought up in front of the whole class. Got a big, fat zero, And what was worse than that was going home and seeing my mom and dad incur the wrath of being caught cheating. But that experience taught me something very important because it taught me to never, ever cheat again. And so what's the difference? Well, some people, they look at that and they say, well, I got caught. I just need to do a better job next time. Or I got caught and I'm going to repent and I'm going to run away from this because I don't want the consequences of this action again. That's the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Worldly repentance and godly repentance, which we'll talk about next week. And then we see also with, uh, with Isaiah, he not only had a personal dread of a sin, but a public confession and dread of the nation's sin. As the prophet of the nation of Israel, Isaiah realized the sinfulness of the people that he represented before God. Look at verse 5 of Isaiah 6. And, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He was grieved before God over the spiritual condition of the nation. He served as the prophet between them and God. And the beauty, beautiful thing about this whole story is we see God in his holiness. We see Isaiah and his dread of sin for himself and the nation. But then we see the love of God that we just celebrated at Communion. As we look at this, the personal forgiveness of sin. The personal forgiveness of sin. One of the greatest things about the God that we serve Yahweh is he gives you a way, a way back to reconcile, to be redeemed, to continue that love relationship with him, to have a relationship with the one who created us. And so he did. And God did for Isaiah what he could not do for himself. And if you're a young person here today, I want to encourage you to think about That each one of us, when we are guilty with our sin, what do we do with that? I watch a world of people out there who go after alcohol, who go after power, who go after working extra hours, who do all kinds of things to try to push their guilt down or escape it. But the only way that you're going to ever deal with the guilt of sin, whether it's your conscience or the Holy Spirit, is to come to God on his terms And own your sin and take responsibility for it and confess it to him. God did for Isaiah what he could not do for himself. Isaiah was genuine in his confession of sin and was willing to turn away from it. God sent the seraph to take the living burning coal off of the altar. Maybe this was the altar representing the altar used for burnt offerings in Leviticus chapter 6. Maybe this was the altar of incense used in the holy place to continually burn incense in the tabernacle. Nonetheless, Isaiah's sins were forgiven and taken care of by the seraph with the live coal touching Isaiah's very lips. As I said before, God will do for you in the area of forgiveness what you cannot do for yourself. But you have to come to God on his terms. In the verse we read during our communion time, if we confess our sins, I love this verse. I apply it almost every day of my life. If we agree with God, if we say that what we're doing is sinful if we spell the sin out if we confess our sins agree with God about our sin he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and when we confess our sins God looks at at us as if we've never sinned as if we're white we're clean we're spotless we don't see that from our human perspective but that's how God sees us if we own our sin and we confess it so what's the application How do you respond when confronted with the depth of your sin in the face of a holy God and his standards? How do you respond when confronted with the depth of your sin? Well, now that Isaiah has seen the Lord in all of his holiness, and all of his power and glory and majesty, he's seen the unworthiness before God of his own sin, God forgives him and calls him thirdly into service. Isaiah responded to the call for service after seeing God for who he is. God always wants a response, an act of worship. When we worship him, whether it's privately or whether it's gathered together, it always elicits a response from us. Look at verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Isaiah said, Here I am, send me. We see the triune God, notice the word us in there, speaking of the Trinity again. We see the triune God asking a question, giving him an opportunity to respond. God calls for a response to our worship. Worship is our response to seeing and knowing who God is. Worship is our response in seeing and knowing who God is. And as we think about that, when we gather together and worship on Sunday mornings, It's all about what we can give to him through singing, through offering, through prayer, through a variety of ways, through opening God's word, through congregational singing. There are many components to worship, but I believe God wants us to respond to what he reveals to us about himself. And part of that response is to fulfill what God has called us to do. And so as a result of worship, we gather together on Sunday as we go out, how do we respond throughout the week? because of what we have experienced here. One of the guys at men's group was talking about how they keep their sermon notes by their bedside to review them throughout the week and think about, am I pondering these things? Am I doing these things that I heard this week? As a result of God's prompting through the Holy Spirit in your private worship time that you should have as well. Isaiah was now cleansed. He was prepared to do the ministry that God had laid out for him in verses 9 through 13, we won't take the time to read that, but God has created each and every one of us to know God and to know how he created us and to use the talents and the spiritual gifts that God has given to us to serve and glorify him. That leads us to our last fill in the blank. God calls us to fulfill what he created us to be. For the last point under here, God calls us to fulfill what he created us to be Each one of us has a calling in our life. Do you realize that word vocation? In the etymology, the the basic foundation of the word means calling. Every one of us has had or has a calling in our life. And even if you're retired, you have a calling as a grandparent. You have a calling as, as being involved in some volunteer service as well. But God has uniquely wired you with your personality, your talents, and then he adds the spiritual gifts when you become a believer to do what no one else can do, to influence a sphere of people that no one else can come in contact with in the unique way that you do. And so whether you're secular or you have a ministry employment, all are important and all are the same. We should be finding out more and more as we get to know God what our role in the kingdom is for this holy God. Ephesians 1.4 says, even as God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. In Ephesians 2.10, for you and I, we are God's workmanship. In the Greek, it means masterpiece. Your particular piece of art created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You are special. You are unique to God. And he wants to use your personality, your talents, your spiritual gifts, your physical gifts to fulfill what he created you to be. And when we surrender to that completely, then we have a joyful relationship with a holy God in a life that God will bless. I think we forget sometimes God desires to bless us more than we seek the blessing. He wants to pour out his blessings upon us. So how do we apply this to our lives? How do you respond when God prompts you to do something for him, big or small? How do Do you respond when God prompts you to do something for him, big or small? Do you ever get the sense of how intimate of a relationship you have with God? This week, I was getting ready to come leave my house and come to church and load all my things in the car, and sure enough, I couldn't find my car keys. And so I I just said, Lord, I'm going to take a shower. You know where my car keys are. I have an extra set for the car, but not to get into the church, so... You know, God, what are we going to do? So I took a shower and prayed about it, and I began to retrace my steps from the last time I was in the car. And sure enough, my keys were in the trunk of the car. And I thank God that he would take time to help me find even the most intimate thing in my life. And if he cares about the small things in my life, he cares about the big things in my life. I love what David said when he said that he wanted to take on Goliath. He said, oh, I've already killed a lion and a bear. What is Goliath? Compared to that, if God can do the small things in your life and show you how much he loves you, think about how he will take care of the giants in your life. I want to close with this, and I want you to think about this all week long. Not only that, but think about it for the rest of your life, really, because the way you worship and serve God is based on how you view God and how you view sin. I want you to think about that. The way you worship And serve God is based on how you view God and how you view sin. Think about that this week as we close in prayer. Let's pray.
0: Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ed. If you'd like to listen to more sermons like this, be sure to subscribe to the podcast. Otherwise, if you'd like to listen to the latest sermon, download our mobile app. On iPhone or Android devices, the Pleasant View Baptist Church mobile app contains sermons from Pastor Ed Heading and also gives you information on events in the Quad Cities and a prayer wall where you can submit your prayer requests. You can find it by searching Pleasant View Baptist Church Bettendorf in the app store. On behalf of the congregation of PVBC, I'm Jeremy Jones, and we're again thanking you for listening to this edition of the Pleasant View Baptist podcast, where we are connecting, growing, and serving in Christ.